NAD Ministerial presents Adventist Ministry, a best practices podcast with Dave Gimmel. I want for us to turn there to the Old Testament. I'm going to read. Welcome to E Huddle. <laughs> and this morning we're having a baby dedication. You know, every now and then. We baptize you now in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Spirit of Spirit. We're about to go eat. I want to thank you for the food. Is there a second to the motion? To present to you. The happiest newlyweds in all the land. Muy buenos días, amigos, hermanos y familias. God, give us strength and power to live like you told us to live. Welcome to the Best Practices Adventist Ministry Podcast. I'm Dave Gemmel. George Patton once said, I don't measure a man's success by how high he climbs, but how high he bounces when he hits bottom. He was, of course, talking about resilience, a core quality of effective pastors. There are only two kinds of pastors, those who have been knocked down and those who will get knocked down, maybe soon. Pastors get knocked down by material loss, loss of health, loss of dreams. But in the tumbles of ministry, Why do some pastors stay down and others get up again? And why do some pastors grow weaker and others grow stronger? Today, three pastors tell their unique journeys of resilience. In Act One, Dan Martellus shares how he lost everything in the Paradise Fire. So we decided to evacuate from the east side of town to the west side of town to take the most common exit out of town. As we came around into Dead Man's Curve, we hit a traffic jam and there was no movement. The smoke was overwhelming. The propane tanks are exploding all around us. It's absolutely intimidating. We have no idea how close, how far away the fire is. We just have to get out of town. In Act 2, Terezina Barbola shares how her plans for ministry were severely altered when her dreams for her daughter were shattered by a difficult medical discovery. We had a baby. Rafaela. When she was seven months, we realized that she was different. And from that point on, we started with a lot of exams and and a big journey with all kinds of tests and exams. And and in the end, she got the diagnostic of autism. And her autism is not simple or light. It's a very severe level of autism. And finally, in Act 3, You'll meet Clayton Fetosa, who faces a life-threatening illness that continues to throw curves at him to this very day. But it was, um, it was very scary at that moment. I was quite young. I was 36, and I had two young children in the house. And when, when you're that young, you, 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 you don't want to hear the words, you know, you have cancer. It's just... It's very frightening. Our website, nadministerial.com, has links and resources if you want to go deeper. Just click on the podcast tab. Now, let's get started. Act 1, Dan Martella. 
Dan is the administrative pastor of the Paradise Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let's listen as he describes what it was like to lose everything in the Paradise Fire. So on November the 8th, 2018, my wife gave me a call from her office to tell me that there was a wall of fire coming towards town and that the entire town was under evacuation orders. I knew this was serious, but we had no idea how serious this could be, but it was time to get out. So I quickly began to grab the family pictures, our computers, our important documents, a few days worth of clothes, and get those thrown into the car. And by now, Linda was home gathering a few last things herself, and we headed out into the smoke. So we decided to evacuate from the east side of town to the west side of town to take the most common exit out of town. As we came around into Dead Man's Curve, we hit a traffic jam, and there was no movement. The smoke was overwhelming. The propane tanks are exploding all around us. It's absolutely intimidating. We have no idea how close, how far away the fire is. We just have to get out of town. And finally, we saw a side road open to the left, and we took that side road around to the last clean exit out of town. I asked Dan to share what is going on inside him as the chaos is unfolding all around him. You know, when you go through and, and you see the this, this smoke just pouring off the mountaintop, you know, there is so much unknown. You don't know what's happening back home, and you keep hope alive that everything's gonna be okay. But the next day over lunch, we got word that our church had burned to the ground. Everything lost except for the well house. And, and the burning question, for all of us is, what's the condition of my house? I want to know. So when I found out that one of our hospital chaplains was able to get in, and I knew he didn't live far from my home, I said, hey, Tom, could you go check my house for me and take some pictures? And so Sabbath afternoon, we got the text message, we got the pictures, we got the I'm so sorry notice, your house is gone. We had the picture there of the heap of ashes, what was left. At that point, life goes into this surreal zone where you, you can't focus, you, you can't engage. Um, as the days and the weeks unfold, you're dealing with this unrelenting fatigue because the adrenaline is wearing off. Um, you're living in a constant state of anxiety, you know, wondering where am I going to live? How will I take care of my family? Um, will there be enough money in the insurance to take care of us? Um, how is this all going to play out? Uh, you deal with a lot of that kind of stuff. And then when it comes to, to doing life and ministry together, you're not the only one going through these staggering losses. So is everyone else. And so you have to interact with each other in this difficult, overwhelming environment. And so the, the challenges are very, very real. So I asked Dan, how do you lead a community that has faced so much loss when you personally have suffered incredible loss? Our church was significantly hit by this. You know, between the Paradise Adventist Church and the other area churches, 397th-day Adventist families lost their homes and everyone else 
that lived in paradise or on the ridge there was displaced. So, you know, there's a high level of chaos, a high level of loss. And being able to lead, when you are processing your own losses as well, requires us to step outside of ourselves and by God's grace, hold people, listen to their story, weep with them, just love them through this time and do everything you can to support and encourage them. I think too, when it comes to the, the ministries of the church, the Sabbath services, try to create as much sense of home and normal as you can so that they get some stability going there in their lives. Next, I asked, how was the Dan Martella after the fire different than the Dan Martella before the fire? I frequently find myself asking the question, how has this fire changed me? I remember a conversation with my daughter recently and I said, I'm not gonna let this fire define me. And I thought about that for a couple of days and realized I had it all wrong. I realized this fire is a defining moment in my life. I cannot escape that. But I don't have to get stuck here. I can move forward. I'm in this journey with Jesus, and he's going to take me forward. So I'm realizing that really all my earthly props have been taken away from me. All my material possessions, gone. So many of the people I did life and ministry with are gone. They just had to move to other parts of the country. So many of those, those supports are gone. And I just have to lean on Jesus. He's the one stable factor in life that keeps me going. So I think that's the big piece. I think the other thing is I'm much more cognizant about self-care because if I get sucked into the chaos, into the craziness, and don't take care of myself. I'm going to burn up, I'm going to burn out, and I'll be useless. In fact, I'll be a liability to the cause. I think this helps improve me as a pastor because maybe I don't take myself as seriously. Maybe I need a, a bigger perspective on things, a, a little more relaxed perspective on things that enables me to, to keep going day by day. Um, I think it creates a greater empathy for people. Virtually everyone in our church has been through this loss, and we've been through this loss. You can feel for them. Hurting people just need to be loved, held. They need somebody to cry with them somebody to encourage them. Finally, I asked Dan, what have been some of the secrets of resilience that have helped you navigate your journey through loss? Coming out of the fire is a journey, and there are people who are stuck. They are not moving forward. For us, the journey out has required us to be honest and real about what has happened. And we haven't tried to gloss that over. At the same time, we have decided that we're not going to stay here. We can be bitter or we can be better. We can get stuck or we can keep growing. So we have chosen to be people of hope. 
We've chosen to lean into the future, and I think it probably requires some discipline in my thinking not to dwell on the past too much. Deal with it. Be honest about it, but don't stay there. Keep moving forward. I've learned that resilience is not just a matter of of enduring. Resilience is a matter of recharging day by day. It's a matter of one-on-one time with God every morning, getting plugged in, charging up for the day. It's a matter of self-care and how I think, how I manage my life, how I take time to relax, take time to release those stresses by taking a bike ride in the park, going to the gym, working out, whatever it takes. It's just, I have to take care of me so I can take care of others. Thanks, Dan, for that intimate view on tragic loss. There's more to Dan's story. We've also got his wife, Linda's perspective. We're also putting together a documentary for the next called convention. Check out our show notes for a fuller story of Dan and Linda's journey. Act two, Terezina Barbalo, pastor of three churches, one of which is a church plant and the other a replant. Few pastors have demonstrated more resilience than Pastor Terezina. I had the great privilege of sitting down with Terezina for a couple hours, and I, I started by asking her what her definition of resilience is. Uh, let's say it's a capacity or a way that people find to just face a lot of struggles and sometimes impossible things to face. And they just move forward and they fall, but they get up and just keep walking. Pastor Barbalo has seen more than her fair share of struggles. As a theology graduate in Brazil, she was rejected from ministry because she was a woman. Eventually hired in the United States, but still not taken seriously by her congregation. But she persevered in ministry pastoring not one, but three congregations. We'll have to tell those stories another time because today she shares her ongoing personal struggle within her family. And then we had a baby, Rafaela. And she's our only one daughter. And we, when she was seven months, we realized that she was different. And from that point on, we started with a lot of exams and and a big journey uh, with all kinds of tests and exams. And and in the end, she got the diagnostic of autism. And her autism is not simple or light. It's a very severe level of autism. I asked her what was going through her heart when she learned of the diagnosis. As I said, we was devastated, you know, with the diagnostics. It was, wow, we never imagined that. Especially, it's interesting. It's just a human way to evaluate things when you are in, in a very hard situation. You think like, you look around, you know, and you say, well, why me, you know? And everyone, you know, get their normal babies and they just, you know, and then you, yes, you say, wow. So we were devastated, of course. Um, and then we moved, but and then we started to learn. 
And I remember one of the psychiatrists in Brazil, I was asking, how about the future? How about when she gets, you know, she's a teenager and so on. So what's going to happen? And I remember he, he said, don't think about that. Think about that when, when you are there. So it's a biblical thing. So he was right. And I tell you that if I thought about that and if I knew that it would be so hard as it is now, I don't think I would be able to, you know, to uh, move on because it, it got worse and worse the level of autism. So I don't know if you know, but autistic kids, they can be very frustrated. So when they get frustrated and they cannot communicate the frustration, they get very upset. And many times they cannot control this. So they can become aggressive. They can have self-injuries. They can engage in destroying the environment or something in order to express, to speak. It's so difficult to them. And I, I learned this in this journey. And as she got older and older, these things were getting worse and worse. So when we went to the seminary, Andrews, I thought it was a, a kind of vacation time, you know, in ministry, because I, uh, some said, oh, seminary is so fine. It's so good when you go. So Potomac Conference sent me there. And we were excited that I would be studying again. So I was very excited, thinking that it would be easy. I tell you, it, it was the worst period of our lives because of her health. So she developed another illness uh, called catatonia. It's a mental illness as well, added to the autism, which causes rigid, rigidness of muscles and and depression, more depression, and the journey was so hard. And she also developed an eating disorder. This was the worst thing to me. Because besides all the problems, so she stopped eating. And I didn't know that, you know, we would get to that point. We, we, we kept feeding her through that tube for two years, almost three. Rafaela requires a lot a lot of not only attention, but care, medical care, uh, all kinds of therapies and all kinds of things. So I say that Rafaela is, she's so sweet. She so deserves all the care and everything and even more. But what I'm saying is that it's it's like a, a business, you know, you have to to have some administration of that doctors and appointments and everything. So imagine it's, uh, this is hard. I always say, I, I survive each day, you know. I never know if I'm gonna get it on the following day. And it looks like I'm getting for 17 years, but I don't know about tomorrow. <laughs> it's just the way it is. The story of Raffaella may not seem directly connected with pastoral ministry, but as she wraps it up, Terezina describes how remarkably it fits together with her calling. I could say that I, I, I see a, a strong connection between Rafaela and God's call to me. I see God working through her to bless me, to, to help me, because now she's so dependent. She needs 100% of assistance for everything, to eat, to simple things of life. So I am always concerned that who is going to take care of her if it's not me. And this makes me stronger, you know? 
because I say, wait, uh, wait a minute, I, I cannot just, you know, give up or be tired and so on. So I get a, I don't know, but I, some energy just come and, and I, I just move on. Uh, so that's why, and even for ministry, you know, so in ministry, that's why I made this connection because even in ministry, so it, when it's really challenging and things happening and so on, so I looked at her and I said, hey, it's also for her, you know, I have to move on. You know, she's a part of all these things since the very beginning. So actually she's the reason, not the reason, but the way God found to not call me back, he called me, but to confirm my call, you know, his call to me. Thanks, Teresina, for encouraging us to keep going in the midst of struggles. Of course, that's only one part of her amazing story of resilience. Go to our show notes to find out more about Teresina Barbalo. And by the way, we'll be documenting her story at the next Called Convention. Act 3, Clayton Feitosa. Clayton Feitosa has served as a missionary, conference administrator, mission president, and now serves as the pastor of the Living Word Seventh-day Adventist Church. Listen to his remarkable story of ongoing resilience. You know, in 2011, when I was serving in Chesapeake as conference secretary, I was diagnosed with a myxoid liposarcoma. That's a tumor, the growth in uh, soft tissue. And that was <clears throat> uh, in my leg. So I, I found this tumor in my left thigh. And after several um, consultations, um, they, they said that I was, uh, it was a malignant tumor and I had to go into surgery right away and receive radiation treatment. So I did all of that. But it was, um, it was very scary at that moment. I was quite young, I was 36, and I had two young children in the house. And when, when you're that young, you, 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 you don't wanna hear the words, you know, you have cancer. It's just, it's very frightening and scary. And no matter how strong you are in your faith, um, it happens. It's normal, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. And um, that, was, um, that was very hard for me, particularly, and, and of course for my family. That was only the beginning of a long, twisting journey, with each turn deepening Clayton's resilience. But we began to fight and uh, did the things that the doctors recommended. And for about three years, I was uh, cancer-free. You know, I was in remission. And that's why we took the call to Egypt. And when the call to Egypt came, um, I had my conversations with God. I said, okay, God, am I healthy enough to take this? And, you know, Egypt wasn't going through uh, a good political time and I, I had my, my cancer in, you know, in, in the backdrop and I was wondering if this was really a call from God, if this was really the plan of God. So I was, I was sure that God was with me and so we took the call, we went to Egypt 
And as we were serving there, just a year and a half into the experience, I had my first recurrence. The tumor came back. I had to fly back to the States, have surgery. And then we decided to go back to the mission feud. And um, we continued the work for another two years, two and a half years, and another recurrence. And that's when things really became critical. And we had to make the hard, very hard decision to move back and, and just take care of, of myself. And I was about to lose my leg. And so we had to leave the mission field behind. And, and that, was, that was extremely hard for me because, you know, looking back, I thought that um, that was the journey that God wanted for me. That I was, I, I went to college, studied theology because I wanted to serve God as a missionary my whole life. And I had no plans to, to return anytime soon. And I was ready to stay in Egypt for as long as God wanted me there. From there, go to other places where he needed missionaries and cross-cultural workers. But then all that experience was cut short, very short. Some people think, oh, three and a half years, well, you had a good, a good run. And some people even come back before, before that for no reason. But for me, it was too short. And I was very disappointed. I know God was leading. I never doubted God. But I really wondered, you know, why God? Why you? Why are you bringing me back for health issues? You have the power to heal me. You can um, make this cancer go away. So why do I have to go through this experience? So it was, it was very hard for me to understand and to accept because that's, that's human nature. We, we, we go through life and we think, you know, life is like a map and we know our destination and we plan out, it's like, it's like a road trip. Um, and and we, plan, we plan our trip, but then we forget that in that journey, there are detours. And I was going through a major detour in my life. And I had to adjust. I had to revisit some of my concepts and, and um, have some very face-to-face um, -face conversations with God about what was going on with my life in general, like as a pastor, and also um, as a person. You know, I'm, I still have two young kids at home, and is this cancer going to take me? And how much time do I have? And in my cancer journey, I, I really came close to God in many ways. And I learned how to share my feelings. I learned how to confront God with, you know, um, difficult decisions and things that I had to do and, and really, really come close to God and uh, I think of, you know, the relationship that Moses had with God, you know, going into the tent when the cloud came and they had a face-to-face -face conversation that, you know, going through my cancer journey, 
brought me close to that kind of experience where, where I had this face-to-face -face conversations with God. As Clayton continued to pastor with greater spiritual depth than ever before, the road took another unexpected twist. Um, just recently, I was um, diagnosed with metastatic disease. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to be diagnosed with cancer. It's another thing to know that the cancer has spread. So after that news, um, you, you really don't know. You really don't know um, your next day. You, you don't know if you have next year. One of the most difficult experiences in this journey was one day when I was having lunch with my older son and I broke the news. I told him that the cancer had spread and we drove home and we parked the car right here. And he was silent the whole way home. And then when I parked the car, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, how much time do you have? And I said, I don't know, son, but I have today. You know, I have tomorrow. So I'm, when, I think about, when I think about what I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for life. I'm grateful for today. I have today. I hope to have tomorrow. And it is the simple things of life now that really brings me joy. But Clayton's journey continues with another surprise turn in the road. A few months ago when I had my last scans, um, something just miraculous happened. Um, my scans came back um, good, not clean. You know, tumors are still there. But for the first time, for the first time in many years fighting this cancer, the scans brought good news. You know, the tumors are not growing, no new tumors, they are actually shrinking. I don't know if this is the beginning of, you know, something great, really great and cancer-free life. I don't know, but I don't worry about that anymore. I know my life is in God's hands, but now I can say that I, I am enjoying a season of peace, of joy, of gratitude that I had not experienced in a long time. When I think about what I'm grateful for, every time I, I wake up in the morning and I see another day, I'm very, very grateful for. I don't take life for granted anymore. Every, every day is a gift from God. My friends are a gift from God. Every time I, I preach in this church, every Sabbath I preach in this church, is truly a gift, a gift from God. So I'm grateful for, for life and the simple things of life that God gives me every day. Thanks, Clayton, for allowing us to walk along with you in your unpredictable journey. Be assured, you're in our prayers. Special thanks goes out to Kimberly Moran for sharing that interview with us. Kimberly is the editor of NAD's Adventist Journey. For the story that she wrote up on Clayton and for a video of this interview, go to our show notes on nadministerial.com podcasts. I hope this episode has been as insightful and inspiring for you as it was for me. 
These stories all remind us that pastors face unique challenges, and it's how we respond that reveal our resilience. Thanks for joining us for NAD Ministerial's Best Practices Adventist Ministry Podcast. We're available on all your favorite platforms, so please like and share and subscribe so you'll be notified when new episodes are posted. We're here to help you grow, keep going, but most of all, keep growing for God's glory. Adventist Ministry. Adventist Ministry Podcast is a production of NAD Ministerial. Executive Producer Ivan Williams. Designed by Halloran Hilton Hill for NAD from Anything is Possible. Written and produced by Dave Gimmel. Edited by Taizi Snyder. 